You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And we have got some questions to answer today. This is definitely the slowest time of the year for a college sports podcast, especially one that skews very much so football heavy like ours does. You know, the previous season, it's now long in the rearview mirror. We're still all basking in the glow of the national championship, but that's, that's a couple months ago. Spring practice has come, it's gone, we're getting closer to the new season, but it's still several months away. Basketball is an afterthought right now, which in this fan base isn't it kind of always, I wish it wasn't that way, but it kind of always is. Baseball is still going on, it's still in line for a postseason berth, but the team has come back down to earth and kind of limped to the finish line. So all in all, this is the time of year where things usually slow down when it comes to the college sports landscape because there's just not a ton going on, but the flow of content never slows down this podcast and it never will slow down on this podcast as long as I'm running it. And our audience, you guys, is made up of the most diehard Georgia fans on planet Earth. That's why you listen to a Georgia sports podcast that's designed the way ours is and one that, that never goes dark. You say what you want about our podcast. We're always here. We never go dark. Doesn't matter what time of year. We are doing our very best to bring you the most hardcore Georgia sports content out there week after week throughout the entire season. So given the diehard nature of our audience, the flow of mailbag questions for us to cover on the show has never abated. That's never been a problem. In fact, it's usually... The opposite. Our problem is I can never seem to find enough time to fit in every question that we get. I used to be able to do that, but as the show has grown over the years, it's become harder and harder to do that. I still try to. I give my very best shot, but you guys are the real deal. You are the most diehard of the diehard Georgia fans out there, and you never let us down. You always have the best questions for us to cover that guide us throughout this long offseason. So today is no different. We're going to take some time today to dig into that mailbag and answer more of your Georgia sports questions. And we're going to kick things off today with Sean. I don't know if we've gotten a question from Sean before. You can definitely correct me if I'm wrong there, Sean. But if you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been a long-time listener that just hasn't sent in a question before, don't be a stranger, my friend, because this is a good question, man. Keep them coming. 
And what Sean is looking at here is the transfer portal, which this time of year, this is all anyone wants to talk about, whether it's NIL or transfer portal. Those are the two topics that kind of dominate the conversation in the offseason because the offseason is all storyline driven. No one really wants to talk X's and O's this time of year. I do. I always want to talk X's and O's. I want to get into the nitty gritty. I want to talk about these teams. But this time of year, your national talking heads, what you're going to get from them is NIL, 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 portal, portal, portal. That's what you're going to get. So this is a, certainly a very popular topic that we haven't addressed that much on the show because I know you hear it everywhere else, but what the people ask for, the people get. So Sean's asking about the transfer portal. And uh, Sean starts it off with this. Now that we are nearing the summer offseason, it seems like Georgia is just going to stand pat and not dip into the transfer portal while other top programs like Alabama improve their rosters in big ways by addressing holes via the portal. Why has Kirby been so hesitant to use the portal to his advantage this season when it has worked for the team so well in the past? This is our question of the day. I chose it as such because it is more of a big picture look at the team, at the sport, the landscape of college football in general. And I think it's a fair question. It's because we have dipped into the transfer portal in the past. We have not been shy about that. And this year, we haven't really done that at all. So I get where you're coming from here, Sean. Let me start by saying this. I don't, at least as far as I'm concerned, I don't think it's hesitancy on Kirby's part. I don't think Kirby's looking at the transfer portal and saying, hey, I I don't want any part of this. I don't think he's pulling a Dabo Swinney who's intentionally not using the transfer portal philosophically to the detriment of his team. Like we all saw that opening game last year in Charlotte against Clemson. They had some major holes along that offensive line. One of the major reasons they had some major holes along the offensive line is number one, they hadn't recruited that well at that position. They missed on some guys and they just didn't have the dudes up front they needed to have to hang with a defensive front like ours. They could have mitigated that by going to the transfer portal. Clemson's a, is a name brand program in college football right now, and there would have been more than a couple of offensive linemen, I would imagine, that would have been interested in transferring to Clemson. But Dabo did not philosophically believe in it. Dabo, I would say fairly, was hesitant to use the transfer portal. I don't think that's the case here with Kirby Smart. In fact, the way I look at it, now this is just me, this is my perception of our transfer portal hesitancy, if you want to call it that this year, I think it's a good sign. And maybe that's the optimist in me. Maybe that's me still basking in the glow of the national championship and trusting in all things Kirby Smart, trusting that man implicitly with what he's done with our program. Maybe this is me looking at the cup half full. I I own that. I will absolutely own that. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I think that's a good way to live your life, right? I mean, we all get cynical at times. I'm certainly not immune to that. But I try to be optimistic about things, especially, again, after we're coming off the national championship, the first one over 40 years. So that's fair. If you want to criticize me for that, that's okay. But I'm choosing to look at this as a good sign. That's honestly how I actually perceive this. Because here's why. Kirby has shown, you're exactly right, Sean. You mentioned it in your question. Kirby Smart has shown in previous years that he is more than willing to go to the transfer portal. Let's not forget his very first year here in Athens, how he went basically to war with Nick Saban over Maurice Smith, over Mo Smith. Now, I know the transfer portal in its current incarnation was not what it is now back in 2016. It was still graduate transfers, but Kirby went to bat, went to war with his mentor, old Saban himself, 
to fight to get Mo Smith on our team. So it's not that Kirby Smart is not willing to use the transfer portal or to get transfers in general. He's shown that he's willing to, whether it's Mo Smith, whether it's Darion Kendrick last year, who really plugged a big hole for us, Arik Gilbert, who I know did not factor in for us last year, but looks to be a major factor in the making coming this season, Jermaine Johnson years past, Lawrence Cager, who was fantastic for us coming over from Miami prior to the injury. I mean, Cager was far better for us than the average Georgia fan thought he was going to be coming into that 2019 season. So Kirby has shown that he is absolutely willing to go to the transfer portal or the transfer market in the days before the official transfer portal to go out and get guys to fill holes for this team where you have because we all we you have this every year where you have holes in your roster where you have an immediate need you need somebody a veteran to come in and plug that hole right away Kirby's done a good job of that in the past he's shown that he's willing to do that so the question becomes and this gets to the crux of your question Sean why not this year what has made this year different and the way I look at it is pretty simple I think this is indicative of how Kirby Smart and our coaching staff feel about our roster and how they feel about the guys within our program that we recruited out of high school that we have developed to step into those roles. We have lost a ton of talent on defense, especially. We know that. That's well documented. We don't need to go into detail on that right now. We've done that all throughout the offseason. You know who we've lost. You watch the NFL draft. You know the guys that are gone. Those are some big name players, some incredibly talented players. And if ever there was a year to go to the portal to find some immediate fixes at those positions, you would think this is the year with all those losses. But yet we haven't gone to the portal, like you said, Sean. So why? To me, it's very simple. It appears to me that we are standing pat out of choice. We feel good about the roster that we have. We feel good about the guys that we have in our program and feel like they can step into those voids and fill them in a big way. Now, all that remains to be seen because we don't know. We haven't seen those guys, but the coaches have. They see these guys in practice. They saw them in a practice on the scout team and during bowl practices all last year. They saw them during spring practice. We did not get to kind of peek behind the curtains and see that. So I'm one of those guys, if you listen to the podcast, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that I typically defer to the coaching staff. I'm, I would say it's fair to say that I'm more hesitant to criticize our coaches than the average talking head, the average podcast host, because I understand what goes on behind the scenes. I understand how much more information those coaches have to operate off of than we do, how many more data points they have. And they just, they're professionals, guys. They do this for a living. This is what they do. And they spend countless hours away from their family doing this. So generally speaking, I defer to them, especially when it comes to you know, roster evaluations, things of that nature. Now, that doesn't mean that they are immune from criticism and that I don't criticize them when I think it's necessary. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. They certainly do. And we've done that on this show. We've criticized, like, for example, Justin Schaefer. Why is he in there? Warren Erickson all last year. Like, What are we thinking with Warren Erickson inside when clearly he, as far as I could tell, was not the best option? And that was just a matter of a preference. The other coaches preferred a guy who they trusted from a knowledge standpoint, from an experience standpoint, over somebody putting Broderick Jones in there at left tackle who they didn't quite trust. They put a premium on that kind of thing. Whereas you and I, fans, we tend to put a premium on talent and who we think is the better player. 
We've been critical of the philosophy of not really turning our, our pass rushers loose as much as we, we've thought that we need to in the past to actually affect the quarterback. I think we started to move away from that the past year or two, but we've been critical of, of things like that in the past. So it's not that they're above reproach. I'm not trying to suggest that. But when it comes to most issues, in comes to situations like this where we haven't seen some of these guys because they've been behind the scenes, they've been working and developing, and the coaches have seen them, I tend to defer to the coaches here. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. I think the coaches have confidence in those guys that they have recruited and that they have been developing for the past couple of years. And I think that happens to be a very good sign. And look, I'm not opposed to going to the portal. I love some of the guys that we brought in the program. I mean, Kendrick last year was a godsend for us. I think Arie Gilbert's going to pay huge dividends for us this year. Where would we have been in 2019 without Lawrence Cager? Would we have beaten Notre Dame in Athens without him that year? I don't know. I don't know if we would have. So I'm not opposed to going to the transfer portal when you need to. What I would say, though, is that ideally, you do not want to have to go to the transfer portal more than anything from a culture standpoint. Culture, guys, within your program is a huge deal. I cannot emphasize that enough. I'm a huge believer in that. I think one of the more underrated aspects of our national championship run last year was the culture that Kirby Smart and staff built and engendered within our program. The skull sessions, the meetings with all the players, spending more time with them, sacrificing some practice time, sacrificing some weight room time to actually meet the players, get to know them, build those relationships. I think that's massive for a team. I mean, think back to 2016. That was a rough first year for Kirby, just like it was a rough first year for Saban back when was that, 2007, I want to say, right? Yeah, it was 2007, right? Yeah, we beat him 2007. Walk off, touchdown pass, Mike Anderson, Matthew Stafford, overtime, Tuscaloosa, let's go. Yeah, so I mean, establishing your culture, guys, it takes time. It's not an easy process. We saw that in 2016. There were some growing pains, but we went through those growing pains for a reason, to get to where we are now, because Kirby knew what it would do for our program. And most of the guys that we've brought in seem to be really great additions, seem to be great players, great teammates, and I think that's important. But that might not always be the case, and you have to be very careful with who you bring into your program. And also, what does it do to the guys that you've been preaching? They've been in your program for a while, you've been preaching development, 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 work, 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 work. And then now when it's their time, when the position is open, and it's their time to shine, you go to the transfer portal and you bring somebody else in that has more experience and takes that starting job away from them. That does some things internally to your program, to the culture, to the vibe within your program. And again, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you gotta do it. And look, competition is very healthy. Kirby's job, our staff's job is to go out and build as talented of a roster as they possibly can. So I'm not saying don't do that, but there are costs associated with doing that as well. There are consequences. For everything that you do, there's a consequence. And you just have to determine, okay, is it worth it? The guys that are out there for us to go get this year in this transfer market, are they good enough? Is their talent worth the internal issues that it might cause within our program? There are some programs out there that have to be more willing to take risk on transfer players because they don't recruit as well with prospects coming out of high school. They don't have that kind of cachet. They don't have the population base around them. They aren't a name brand, whatever the reason might be. 
But there are programs like, let's say Ole Miss, for instance, you know, Lane Kiffin has trademarked himself as the Portal King, and that's all good and well, but that's because Ole Miss has to go to the Portal to get top-line players. Ole Miss is not going to consistently, year in, year out, go up against the top recruiting superpowers in the country, the Georgias, the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Ohio States, and get five-star prospects. They might get a guy here and there that's a local guy, but Nicobe Dean's a great example. Nicobe Dean's a Mississippi kid. He didn't go to Ole Miss. He didn't go to Mississippi State. He went to Georgia because we, we are more of a name brand. We have more recruiting cachet across the country. So a program like Ole Miss has to take a chance on a former five-star prospect in the portal, a guy like Zach Evans, for instance, who has red flags trailing 17 miles behind him. But they have to take a chance on a guy like that because they can't get players of that caliber out of the high school ranks. Whereas programs like Georgia and Ohio State and Alabama, and look, I know Alabama has gone into the portal the past couple years and gotten some big time players, but we don't have to take as many risks. We can be pickier if we choose to go to the transfer portal to fill some needs. We can be pickier on the guys that we go in there and get, guys that we do our background checks on and we don't take flyers on that we feel comfortable about the fit and we feel comfortable about them being a part of our locker room and not coming in and being a cancer and dividing things and just causing problems. So I think that's certainly one reason why you're not going to see us be a major player in the transfer portal every single year. We're going to get guys from time to time where we feel like there's a need and we feel like it's a great fit for our programs. I Again, I think that's important. I know Kirby Smart thinks that's important. So I think that's maybe part of it. But I think another aspect to this in this isolated season, this offseason, I just don't think that there are a ton of big time names out there that we would realistically land out of the portal that would be like shoe in, no questions asked. They're going to fill that need for us like a guy like Darion Kendrick was for us last year. I don't know if those guys are out there in the portal right now. There were more of those guys early in the offseason, but those guys got scooped up real quick while we were still trying to win a national championship. So we kind of missed the boat a little bit there on guys like Eli Ricks, who maybe was going to Alabama all along, but we kind of missed the boat there on some of those guys. And we just didn't have the influx of talented prospects going into the portal like maybe we've seen in years past. There are a couple of names here and there. Obviously, Jordan Addison from Pitt, that was a big name, but there just weren't a ton of guys. I think if you're looking at the portal right now, the guys that are available at the positions that we really need to fill, that we could use some instant help at, I just don't know if there are a ton of impact guys that they're going to come in right off the bat and unquestionably fill that need. And I've never been an advocate of just taking a guy to take a guy, to take a body. That's not something that you want to be in the business of doing. You know, before the transfer portal, like JUCO, that was the the, the way to transfer into a program primarily because you had to sit out a year if, if you weren't a JUCO guy. And there was always a conversation, well, should George go more in the JUCO ranks? And we never really did for a lot of the same reasons that maybe we're not going into the transfer portal as hard this year, because it's really hard to consistently sustain a high-level program if you're constantly having to go and get players from other schools, because those guys are not in your program. They're not versed in how you run your program and the values and the standards of your program from the get-go. They're trying to learn that on the fly while they're also trying to win a position. And so you don't get those guys from the earliest years that they're in college. They're kind of already steeped in habits. They've already built habits, and some of those habits might not align with your organizational values and what your standards and expectations are. So it's just tough to consistently rely on the JUCO ranks once upon a time and now the transfer portal to consistently be refilling the coffers of your program. And I know the one big position 
that everyone wants to see us go get a guy at in the transfer portal this year, and I know this because we get a lot of questions about it, is wide receiver. That's the question we get more about with the transfer portal than any other position. It's not so much safety. It's not so much cornerback or inside linebacker. It's wide receiver. Everyone wants us to go out there and get that big-time wide receiver. But you have to understand, guys, I, I do believe that Kirby Smart and our staff have looked hard at the transfer portal. And I do believe that we probably wanted to bring in an impact-type wide receiver if we could land one. Everyone wants that. I think our coaching staff should be included in that. But when it comes to that position specifically, and we've talked about this on the show before, very simply, that is not a premier destination for wide receivers. We are not. That's just a fact. We are not a premier destination for impact wide receivers, especially coming to the transfer portal who are trying to go to a bigger school where they can put up bigger numbers and get more spotlight so they can position themselves better for the NFL draft and for NIL opportunities. We are not a premier destination for that right now. If you're a wide receiver and you come to Georgia, you're probably not going to go for a thousand yards. That's what history says. Eventually that will happen. Somebody will, but history says we've had one guy in the entire history of our program, Terrence Edwards in 2002 to ever do that where Alabama just you know, spits them out. They just churn them out over and over again. So why does Alabama get a guy like Tyler Harrell from Louisville? Why do they get Jermaine Burton? Why does he leave Georgia and go to Alabama after we just beat them for the national championship? Because he wants to put up numbers now in the age of NIL so he can get NIL dollars, but also to put up numbers to better position himself for the NFL draft to get even more dollars once he goes to the next level. And right now, we do not simply have the proof of concept to lure those top transfer wide receivers. We simply do not. Like getting Lawrence Cager back in the day, like that was a godsend and we got lucky there. But you gotta remember, Cager wasn't a big time transfer prospect at that time. He wasn't a sure thing impact type guy because he didn't have necessarily the overwhelming proof of concept at Miami. Now he turned out to be a really good player for us. And when I watched the tape of him coming over, I thought he could be that guy for us. And it turned out that was the case. But we're not gonna be able right now until we give all these transfer wide receivers in the future, more of a proof of concept, we're not going to be able to go out and land those top guys in the transfer portal. It sucks, but we're not going to be able to land the, the Addisons, the Tyler Harrells, the, I mean, Jermaine Burton was on our team, but a guy of that caliber, Jalen Robinson from UCF. And that's just the reality. That is the reality right now. And just like the defensive line with Trey Scott, it took a while to get the proof of concept. But now that we've got the proof of concept, he can go out into any living room in the country and compete with anybody out there to get the top defensive lineman in the country. It took some time for that. There are a lot of questions about defensive line recruiting and Trey Scott, just like there are a lot of questions about wide receiver right now until we got those guys and put them in the NFL draft. And that's going to happen at wide receiver too at some point, probably. But Right now, it's not, but, it, but it's okay. There's a give and take, and that's actually going to lead us to our next question that we got here that's about the tight ends. We'll, we'll get to that in just, in just a second, but to wrap this up, Sean, I know I, I went kind of long here, but I know it's, it's a big picture question. I'm not concerned about us not using the portal this year. I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's hesitancy on Kirby Smart's part. I don't think this is indicative of, of a, a burgeoning philosophy that he's anti-transfer portal. I don't believe that's the case at all. I think it's just a random year and a confluence of events. There, we, our needs just didn't really align with the guys that are in the portal right now. There aren't the impact players out there that we think are better than the guys that we have developed within our program. 
And I, I think all that's kind of just combined together to make us, um, to put us in a situation where we were not as much of a player in the transfer portal this year as we've been in the past and as, as much as some of the rivals that we have to contend with in the SEC were this year. But I don't think that's necessarily going to be the way it is moving forward year after year after year. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay. That takes us to our next question, and I kind of teased this there at the, the tail end of that last response, and this is from our good friend Cliff, long-time listener, long-time friend of the program. Cliff, hope you're doing well, buddy. And Cliff, he's not talking about wide receivers, he's talking about tight ends. So Cliff asks, have Georgia fans been too fixated on seeking five-star wide receivers that we have lost sight of having five-star hybrid wide receivers and tight ends? Could it be possibly that Kirby and Munkin have a new formula in mind. Cliff, you have hit the proverbial nail on the proverbial head. Absolutely, 100%. You're spot on here, my friend. And that's kind of what I was getting to at the tail end of that last response. I wanted to save it for this question. But you're you're right in that we haven't been getting those big-time five-star wide receivers. We've been getting some good players. I think our valuation has been really good at that position. A.D. Mitchell, former three-star guy, no one really paid attention to coming out of high school. The evaluation, we hit. Lab McConkey. Same thing. Nobody was paying attention to Lad McConkey. He was a throw-in at the end of a class, but the evaluation was there. Nailed that. Lad McConkey is a big-time player for us, and I, and I mean that. I think Lad McConkey is a big-time player for us, but you cannot ignore the facts. The facts are we have had trouble outside of George Pickens landing those top five-star wide receivers come out of high school, and that's been a pretty consistent theme here for a couple of years now. That's nothing new. It's one of the reasons why, it's a big reason why Cortez Hankton is no longer employed by the University of Georgia and he took a lateral job at LSU because he could kind of see the right on the wall. He heard the, he heard the noise. Let's just, let's just put that out there. That, that's certainly the case. But we've had problems getting five-star wide receivers. Alabama has not. LSU has not. Those programs recruit those guys just fine because, again, go back to what I said with the last question, proof of concept they don't have to project. They don't have to sell wide receiver prospects coming out of high school, those top five-star guys, on the possibility that you can be the one to break the code. You can be the one to be the next 1,000-yard receiver. They don't have to sell that. They just say, look at the numbers, man, and look at the guys we put in the draft. That's all they got to do, and it sells itself. 
We have to actually go out and sell our program and say, hey, look, look at our awesome college town. Look, we're winning titles. And yeah, we promise we'll get you the ball more, but we can't actually prove that we're going to do that. We can say it, but the proof of concept's not there. Other programs don't have that issue. And I know there's a lot of consternation in the fan base. Again, I know that because we get a lot of questions. We run a Georgia podcast and we get a lot of questions about that. So many that we don't even cover all of them because we can only answer that question so many times. So I know that frustration is out there. It exists in a large portion of the diehard fans in this fan base. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not going to lie. I get frustrated with it at times as well. I would love to be laying those five-star guys. But there's a give and take here. When you think about why is Georgia not laying those five-star wide receivers? Well, it's because our offense is structured in a way that features different elements of the offense. You know, we like to call ourselves RBU, right? Running back university. Well, we wouldn't be that. We couldn't sell that to players as much to top running backs, guys like Branson Robinson and guys like Kendall Milton. We couldn't sell ourselves that way to those guys if we weren't running the ball as much as we do and as committed to run as we are. If we were chucking the ball around the field and throwing it 50 times a game and running backs only getting 10 touches a game, well, yeah, we could recruit more wide receivers, but what you're gaining in wide receiver recruiting, you're losing, you're giving up in running back recruiting. There's give and take there. And so if you look at how our offense has been structured lately under Todd Munkin, especially with the emergence of Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, certainly to a lesser degree, but he's obviously a big time player. We're landing these five-star and top 100 prospects at tight ends in a way that nobody else in the country is because we are featuring those guys. If we didn't feature Brock Bowers last year the way that we featured Brock Bowers, do we get Oscar Dell? He might have gone to South Carolina. He was strongly considering South Carolina. Do we get a guy like Pierce Sperlin? Probably not. Do we get to put our foot in the door of the top tight ends in the country year in and year out? Probably not. Now, Todd Hartley's a fantastic recruiter. That's certainly a part of it too. But we have proof of concept. We have shown that. And we have not only told those guys, hey, here are our plans for the tight end position. We've told them that, and now we have somebody we can point to and say, see, this is what we're talking about. If we didn't feature Brock Bowers the way we did last year, if we featured Jermaine Burton more, maybe Jermaine Burton's still on the team. Maybe we can go out and get a five-star wide receiver, but we're not going to get into the living room. Oh, we could probably get in the living room because we're Georgia, but we're not going to be able to land guys as consistently as we have been. Guys like, again, Pierce Sperlin, guys like Oscar Dupp, I think he's going to be a big-time player for us because we're not featuring that position. So, you, can fe- you can't feature all positions at the same time. It's just that simple. So you've got to choose what you're going to structure your offense to do. And right now, clearly what Todd Munkin is favoring is more of a pro-style offense where we're running the football, we're establishing play action off of that, and we're taking shots down the field. And the tight ends, the running backs are a big part of that. And receivers get to benefit from some explosive plays, but they might not get as many touches as you get at other programs. So that is the formula that Cliff is alluding to here, and he's exactly right. We have a, we clearly have a different formula in mind than what Alabama has. Now, philosophically, at the end of the day, we still want to do the same things. We want to be efficient. We want to be explosive. Every offense wants that. They want to be efficient. You want to be explosive. There are just differences in opinions and different ways to go about doing that. How are you going to be efficient? How are you going to generate explosive plays? And guys, it, you might not think this, and I know the national media, the, the average fan out there across the country doesn't think of Georgia this way, but look at the advanced numbers. Look at the raw numbers. We are as efficient and as explosive as just about anybody in the country offensively using the formula that Todd Munkin has put in place with our program with the running backs and tight ends. Those are facts. Those are hard numbers. And I know that we don't 
run as many plays because we don't go tempo. So our overall like total yardage numbers, which I think is a very overrated stat, aren't as high as Alabama's, and that skews the perception of our program and of our offense. And also the fact that we were just murdering everybody last year. So we basically stopped trying to score after halftime for the vast majority of our games last year. So we didn't put up, you know, 70, 70 spots on teams. But if you look at explosives numbers, you look at efficiency numbers, we were as good as anyone in the country. And I stand by that because that's what the numbers say. And at the end of the day, and I think I, I was talking about this with, with Cliff over Twitter. And I think I, I said this in one of my tweets. At the end of the day, I really don't freaking care how we get it done. I want us to be efficient and explosive offensively. I want us to score. I want us to put up points, and I want us to win freaking football games. And you know what? We won more freaking football games than anybody in the country last year using that formula, using the running backs, using the tight ends, using the play-action game. We didn't do it like Alabama, but we beat Alabama. We won the national title. So again, I don't care. If it's featuring wide receivers, fantastic. That, that means we're going to get a load of five-star wide receivers, the top wide receivers in the country every year, great. If that means that we're going to get the best tight ends in the country, great. The best running backs, great. I really don't care. I don't. I just want us to win, and I think you win by being explosive and efficient offensively, and we're doing that right now. If that stops, then let's revisit this. But right now, I don't see why it would stop because all those guys are back this year, and they're a year older and more experienced and I think we have more weapons to work with offensively. So I think we're going to be fine. I think we're going to be in the top five in most of those categories yet again. So Cliff, again, my friend, as usual, buddy, nailed it. Absolutely nailed it here. All right, next question. This one is from Paul. Paul's had a series of great questions over the past couple months over the course of this offseason. And this one is no exception. So thank you, Paul. Always appreciate it, man. And Paul is asking about Tyke Smith. He asks, one of the biggest X factors on the team this year is Tyke Smith. I feel like no one's talking about him, though. What are your expectations for Tyke this season, and how much would a healthy Tyke Smith alleviate your concerns about the secondary? Great question. First off, let me just say, I don't have a ton of concerns about the secondary. I'm not going to sit here and say I have zero concerns, but I do think that I'm probably less concerned than the average fan, at least based off my interactions with our listeners. I know that's not everybody, but it's, it's enough of the fan base. I think there's more concern out there than than I personally have. I feel fantastic about Keely Ringo. I told you guys a couple years ago when he came out of high school, I thought he might end up being the best player in that class, and it's shaping up to look that way. If he can keep his weight in check and play around 210, 215, he got a little big um, towards the end of that uh, regular season. He's playing about 230-plus in the SEC Championship game. He had to get his weight down a little bit. So if he can keep that down and, um, and continue to progress, which I fully expect him to, to do, he's going to be elite. He could be a first-team All-SEC guy. We've got a returning starter at safety, potentially two returning stars at safety if you want to call Dan Jackson a returning starter. He started about half our games last year because of the injury to, to Chris Smith, like six or seven, I want to say, so close to half of our games. Is he the most talented player on the roster? No, I don't think he's the most talented option at, at safety, but I do think he's more talented than, again, the average Georgia fan would like to give him credit for, and he has a lot of experience, and the coaches trust him. And as I said earlier, you can't discount how much a coach has trusted a guy. Kirby puts an emphasis on that, especially in the secondary, where one mistake, one blown coverage can result in explosive play, which can change the course of a game. So I think he's certainly a, a good option there. And Chris Smith is back, and I think Chris has played at a really high level for us since he's taken over that starting job. And really, I guess, what, halfway through 2020 when, when Richie LeCount had his 
tough accident and, and Smith was thrust into duty and he's been great since then minus the injury he dealt with last year. But really the only position I'm concerned about right now in the secondary is the field cornerback because Keeley is going to play boundary corner. That's where you put your top guy because they're, that's where teams typically attack more consistently. But the field corner, that's up for grabs. And there are a ton of guys that are going to be vying for that spot. Kamari Laster was a guy that got most of the reps there were the ones during spring. We didn't see him at G-Day because he fell, fell sick, I think, like the night before G-Day came down sick. And then you've got like William Poole played out there with the, with the, with the number one defense during G-Day. I think he's more of a star guy long-term. That's where he's going to project to play. I project him to be our starter at star. And I thought, you know, he had a rough game at times against Alabama. He did some good things against Alabama in the SEC Championship game, but he also got burned a couple times, and that's to be expected. He hadn't really played much in his entire career. I thought he played much better against Michigan and much better in the National Championship game. So I'm excited to see what he can do now that he looks to be the guy going into, the, into fall camp at that position. So I'm, I feel good there. I think Javon Bullard can be another guy that can back him up and play really well. Tyke Smith, and I know that's your question, Paul. Tyke Smith can fit in at the star position as well, because let's not forget, he was slated to be our starter at star last fall camp. Then he hurts his foot about halfway through fall camp and then comes back and just working, working himself back and then he tears his ACL. Just really tough stuff for him. But he can certainly factor in there as well. But it's the other cornerback position. Is it going to be Kamari Laster? Is Buller going to get a look out there? Is William Poole going to get more of a look out there? We uh, Dale Never I thought looked really good for a guy who was an early enrollee at G-Day. Nyland Green is a guy that a lot of us thought as an early enrollee last year was going to be a guy that would factor in there. And I think he's starting to make some moves. We have some highly talented five stars, Julio Humphrey, Jaheim Singletary coming in. I think we have a question later on about Marcus Washington Jr. who just reclassified to the 2022 class. So there are a lot of options and a lot of talented options. I'm not concerned about the talent. I'm just concerned about the experience. I do like the fact that it's, it is a position where we have a lot of young talent and there's going to be a lot of competition. So I like that. But the fact is, whoever ultimately ends up taking that spot is going to have essentially zero meaningful experience playing that position. And that's concerning when you open up against a Power 5 opponent in Oregon. Although, I mean, Bo Nix is their quarterback, so take that for what it is. And then you got South Carolina with Spencer Rattler in Week 3 early in the season. And those are teams that can challenge us through the air. And you know they're going to target that position. So that's a little bit concerning. So that's why I say like, I don't have zero concerns, but I'm not overly concerned. As for Ty Key, again, I do think he's going to get a look at star. I think he has some positional versatility. I think he's another guy that will get a look at safety. I think Dan Jackson right now is the starter going into fall camp alongside Chris Smith, but Ty Key Smith, David Daniel are both going to get some serious looks there. And I, it just depends on how healthy Ty Key really is. Like how far, we know how far he'll be removed from the injury, but how much has he progressed? Is he back to 100%? Like he's cleared, but is he 100%? He was doing some things during spring practice. I, I think there's a good chance he'll be close to 100%, but we just don't know when there's a rust factor. And he didn't really play that position for us when he was practicing last year. You know, I it, it's tough. It'll be an uphill battle for him. But I do think he'll factor into our plan some way, somehow, because he's that talented. Let's not forget he was a third-team All-American at West Virginia coming here to Athens. He's a guy that can absolutely help us. And I do think that the fact that he can play multiple positions helps him, but I think it's going to be star safety, one of those two. And there's going to be an open competition, and I think he'll be in the thick of the competition at both positions. My expectations, I don't know. It's just tough to project without knowing like the injury situation, exactly what he is, where he's at from a health standpoint. 
I know this is kind of a cop-out, and I apologize for that, but my, I'll say my expectations for him are to be in the thick of the competition at both safety and star. That's really where my expectations are right now for him without knowing where he is from a, a full-on health standpoint. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, after that final break, we have three more questions that we're going to get to today, and we'll save the rest for later on in the offseason. This next one is from Pete. Now, this is a, a newsworthy item that came out early this week. I want to say maybe maybe Monday. I think it was Monday, actually. But this is about Marcus Washington Jr., whose dad, yes, was that Marcus Washington who played linebacker for us uh, when I was in college, actually. He ha- is a cornerback, and he's reclassified to the 2022 class. So Pete says, I was surprised to see Marcus Washington Jr. reclassified to the 2022 class. Why do you think he made this decision at this stage, and what chance do you give him to contribute next season? All right, so it's kind of a two-part question here. First off, why did he make this decision at this stage? I This is pure speculation. I don't know the guy. I don't have any sources near this. I haven't really talked to anybody on the program about this, so this is just 100% pure speculation on my part, and kind of just reading the tea leaves and, and kind of figuring out what's going on there. But if I'm looking at this situation from the outside looking in, which I am, I think there's a couple things to consider here. Number one, we have a position at that field corner that is wide open right now. There is no really presumptive starter. I mean, I know that somebody had to work with the ones during spring practice, but I don't think we can go as far as saying Kamari Laster is a presumptive starter right now. Maybe he has a slight edge going into fall camp, but that position is open. And next year, it's not going to be open. Now, Keely Ringo is almost certainly going to go pro, but then if he doesn't come in this year, all those young guys that came in as part of the 2022 recruiting class, the Singletaries, the Everett's, the Humphreys of the world, they're going to have a full year of development and practice time ahead of him. So that's a leg up on him. And not to even mention guys like Nyland Green, obviously. So even if he does not come in and win that open cornerback job this offseason, which I do think will be an uphill battle for him, we'll get that in a second. But even if he doesn't win that job, what reclassifying does for him is it puts him on, an, on a level playing field, even grounds with those guys that were coming in as part of the 2022 class. Again, the Julio Humphreys, the Dalen Everett's, the Jaheim Singletary's. They're not going to have a year's development as an advantage against him going to that battle next year when Keely Ringo goes to NFL draft, which sparring injury, he almost certainly will. I think that's what it's more about than anything else. And if you look at his high school program, I mean, I know a lot of people, or maybe not a lot, but I have seen some people say, oh man, like you're missing out on your senior year. Do you really want to miss out on your entire senior year? You don't get those memories back. And I hear that and I get that. I do remember my senior year fondly. I remember my high school years fondly. I, I certainly remember that. But you also have to factor in where he's playing high school football. He plays at Grovetown. And if 
I'm saying this correctly, I believe they've won like five games combined the past two seasons, something like that. They're not good. It's not a great program. This is not a contending program. They're not going to contend for anything. They're probably not even going to contend for a playoff spot this year. So why stick around if you're already in a position where you have the credits to graduate early? Why stick around and play for a subpar high school football program when you can go ahead and go to the University of Georgia, get the best coaching, get the best development out there, and put yourself in a position to maybe compete for a job this year that's, that's available? And if not, compete for a job next year that will almost certainly be available when Keely Ringo goes to the NFL draft. Just put yourself in that position. Go ahead and get a head start. I think it's smart, honestly. I really do think it's smart on his part. And it's probably the move I would have made if I was in his shoes and he thinks he's ready at this stage. Now, the next part of this question, second part here, what chance do I give him to contribute next season? Honestly, not a ton. He's not an early enrollee. He missed spring practice. Now, there's some other guys. James Singletary did not enroll early. Julio Humphrey did not enroll early. I wish they would have, but they did not. So that's not necessarily the end of the world for him. He could come in, he could compete for a job, and, and, and ultimately win it out if he's the best guy. That's not unheard of. It's unlikely, but it's not unheard of. What I'm talking about is more from the perspective of how game-ready is he right now. I have watched his tape several times, many times actually, going back to when he committed, and I think he's a guy with a really high ceiling. I think he has the potential to be a really good football player. I just don't think he's there right now to the point where he's ready to be that kind of guy in the SEC for a potential national championship contender. He's six foot, 170 pounds. He needs to get a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. He's got really good speed. He is fast. And that's something you can't teach. And Kirby is big on speed in the secondary, really speed all around. That's important. But he's raw right now. He certainly has to learn how to play that position at a collegiate level, at an SEC level, at the level that we demand of our cornerbacks. And I think if he came in for spring practice, he could that could certainly would have helped him in that regard. But not coming for spring practice, coming in here for the summer months, the workouts, which is great, but not really practice time, actual practice time, and just getting his first taste of practice in fall camp, I think it's unlikely. I think there are other guys who have a better chance to win that job than he does. But again, I think it's more about next, I think it's more about 2023 than it is about 2022 for him and putting himself in position for that. Now, could he be a special teams contributor? Sure, that's not out of the question. So that, and that's a contribution to the team. That's, that's, not valued as highly as I think it should be by a lot of players, but I don't see him being a major contributor at cornerback or star really anywhere in the secondary in year one. All right, next up, we got a, a question from Christian. I appreciate it, Christian, who's asking about the week one kickoff time. I'm sure you guys saw this earlier in the week. I think this was released on Tuesday. I'm a sucker for these kind of things. I love it. To me, like when they release the first three weeks of the schedule, like the TV times, the kickoff times, which they should be doing here. They usually do it like right before Memorial Day. So within the next week or so, we, we know week one now. We'll probably know weeks two and three here shortly. I love this because it's one of those markers. I look for markers throughout the offseason that tell me that we're getting closer and closer to the coming college football season. And this is one of those things for me and excites me because I'm into like when we're going to play because I go to all these games and I just like to know those things. Helps me prepare mentally, helps me actually prepare like from a practical standpoint, all those things. So I love it. It's it's like the, the little bit of football that we get in the off season. So I get excited about these things. And I was excited yesterday when ESPN slash ABC released the kickoff times for some of those big time early matchups. We are going to be kicking off, if you haven't seen this, which again, if you listen to this podcast, I'm certain you've seen this. We're kicking off week one in Mercedes-Benz Stadium 
against Oregon at 3.30 p.m. So Christian asked, with ABC releasing the kickoff times for some of the big early season matchups, how do you feel about Georgia versus Oregon getting passed over for the primetime game day feature slot? I don't have a problem with it at all, Christian. Uh, in fact, I don't prefer night kickoffs. I know that goes against everything that most of you stand for. I will readily admit that night kickoffs cannot be rivaled in terms of atmosphere. I do love that. I do enjoy that. Selfishly, though, from just my perspective on like what I like to do on game days, 3.30 is a really good time. I actually don't hate noon games. I know that's anathema to most of you. You're going, oh, how dare you? Spit takes in the car. I, I know. I get that. I know I'm not the norm when it comes to that. But I, like, obviously, I want to see our games. I also like to watch other games of the day. I love Georgia football. That's the number one passion of my life. But I also am passionate about college football in general. I like to watch other games. And if we play at night, most of the other good games are on at the same time, and I can't always watch. I, I record them and watch them later, but it's, you know, it, it's not the same thing. So I don't hate night games, but I prefer like a 3.30 kick, to be honest with you, because that way I can watch the games before most of those games, and then I can watch the night kickoffs, the primetime games. So I'm not bothered by it. I know some people like to tailgate all day and get liquored up and have a good old time, and Dude, more power to you. That's awesome. That's a huge part of college football. I get that. But for me personally, I actually kind of like it. I, I do, especially if it's not like on a, on a campus site. If we're playing a neutral site game, I do not want that game at night. Why do I want to play at night inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium? That does nothing for me. The environment, it's a it's a clinical environment anyway. It's more. It's less so when you have a college fan base in there than the pro fan base, but it's just not the same. I think college football, don't even get me started on neutral environments. College football needs to be played on campus. So that's absurd, but that's neither here nor there. That's for another day. So I'm not upset about it from that standpoint. Am I upset about the game day feature slot? I mean, not really. Honestly, Notre Dame in Ohio State is probably a bigger matchup. I think that's a fair thing to say. I know we are the, 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 the defending national champion. So from that perspective, like, how could it be a bigger matchup? It's got, um, I, I don't know, is Oregon a traditional power? I don't think Oregon's been a traditional power lately, but they're a really good program. They are a high profile name brand program. We can say that at the very least. Had been good, not dominant, not elite, not great recently. Obviously had the run with Chip Kelly, but that's that's in, in the past. Now, that was quite a few years ago at this point. And you look at Ohio State, at Notre Dame, two of the Blue Bloods in college football, and they haven't played in a while. They don't play on the regular. I And that's on campus. It's an on-campus game. And look, game day, they'll go to neutral site venues. They usually do that for the opening week games. Usually the biggest games are at neutral sites. But when they have a matchup of that stature week one and it's on campus, Game day would prefer to be on campus. They get more of the fan base there. It's more of an audience. That's kind of what game day's been to do. It's an on-campus kind of deal. That's really what they're built to do. So I get it from the matchup standpoint, from the fact that it's played in Columbus. I don't begrudge them at all for that. I know there's the conspiracy theory segment of our fan base that's just convinced that ESPN and the national media hate us. And is everyone always fair to us? No, but a lot of people aren't fair to a lot of programs. I don't think it's an exclusive Georgia thing. So I don't worry about that. I think this is a, a very reasonable, logical decision made by ESPN to go to Columbus, Ohio for this game, to put this on at 730. And you know what, guys? I'll be able to get home. So I'll be at, I'll be at Mercedes-Benz. The game will be over around 7, right? So I'll probably get home to Athens, I don't know, cons- let's say like 9, 930. 
That's about halftime of that game. I'll be, have it on DVR, and I'll pick up about 9, 9.30 with that game, and I'll be able to watch the entire thing before I fall asleep. And to me, that's a beautiful way to end the night. And I know not all of you are going to agree with me on that because we all have different conceptions of, of what we want to do for our game days. But for me, that's what I like to do, and it works out really well for me. All right, and our final question. This is a good question. It's a fun question from Gavin, and hopefully I can help you out here, Gavin. So Gavin asks, my buddies and I are looking to make a road trip out of one of our road games this season. I know you make all the road trips, so if you had to pick one this season, which road trip would you recommend? Great question, fun question. You're right, Gavin. I've been making all these trips for, God, I don't even know how long now. Uh, I guess we had the, the COVID interlude. Where I didn't get to all the games. I went to Tuscaloosa, went to Kentucky, went to South Carolina that season. Where did I not go? Uh, where did we play? Arkansas. Didn't go to Arkansas, but, man, I wanted to go to that game, but... Neither here nor there. Could not convince the wife at that point early in the season to go to that game, but that's okay. Still got to go to a lot of them, but didn't go to all of them that year. But other than that, for a long time now, I've gone to all these games. So, yeah, I think that I have some good tips for you here. There's, I actually love the even number road trips. I know that they are longer because this is always when we have an SEC West team that's not a permanent rival like Auburn. We always have one of those teams on the road this year. We always have Missouri on the road this year and Lexington on the road this year, so Kentucky. Those are three of our longest, like our three longest road trips all in one year. But I think it's really cool to go to the SEC West towns that we don't get to go to on on a regular basis. I really enjoy that, whether it's Baton Rouge or Oxford or Starkville this year. I, I, I love going to those places. We don't get to go very often, so it's fun. And then Missouri and Lexington, I think, are, for my money, the two best road trips that a Georgia fan gets to go to on a regular basis. I know a lot of people will say Nashville, and Nashville's cool, but what I prefer, I do like Nashville. I know Charlie hates Nashville. I like Nashville. It's a fun town. Always have a good time there. I've never not had a good time in Nashville. But I prefer college campuses for a college football weekend because the vibe there is just different. You have to be, if you've, those of you who've gone to Nashville for a game against Vanderbilt, it's a lot of fun, but it's not so much about the game. Like the fun part about the game is like, it's never stressful, except for what, 2013. <laughs> and uh, it's just fun to go in there and take over the state and have a good time. And you don't have to really like worry about it. You don't get stressed. You just have fun, but it's not a college environment. It's not a college vibe. It's not, it's just a fun town to go to. And that's, a, that's, a, that, that's great, but I like to really experience a college environment for a big-time college game. And Nashville is not that. So I know a lot of you would say that, but I wouldn't say it for that reason. But I think that Missouri is an awesome road trip, and I think Lexington is an awesome road trip. I know that getting to Columbia, Missouri is tougher. This is actually the first year that I will be flying into, I won't be flying directly into Columbia. I'll be flying into Kansas City, then driving, to, getting a car, and then driving to Columbia. In the past, what I have done is I leave Thursday night, drive, it's, not, it's a little bit more than halfway, I think, and I drive to a place called Metropolis, Illinois, which you've probably never heard of, and it's in the middle of nowhere. There's, it's a nothing nowhere town that just happens to have this giant Harris Casino there, and so it's just a quick, easy place to stay, and we stay there and then drive, get up early Friday morning and drive the rest of the way and then enjoy the whole weekend in Columbia. And that, so when you break it up like that, it's not that bad of a drive. It's like a 12-hour drive. You break it up, it's not that bad. Now, what sucks is driving the entire way back home on Sunday. That's pretty brutal. So I'm excited to fly into Kansas City this year. And I would probably advise you to do that. I mean, it's kind of fun, I guess, to have a road trip with buddies if you're going to do that. But I think flying would be the easiest way to do it. But despite the logistical issues getting there, 
Once you get there, Columbia, Missouri is a fantastic college town. Of all the road trips that we go on, I would say it's the closest thing to Athens that we have in the SEC, at least. I think I would say that, yeah. Like it's not, it doesn't have as many bars to Athens, it's not as big as Athens. It's like Athens light, but it's kind of like that. It's a really cool, like legitimately true college town. And there's just enough cool bars. There's this place called Booches, which has like steamed burgers and hot dogs, which is like always our first stop. We go there for lunch and have drinks. Like an old throwback, kind of like dive bar, but just a, a really cool bar. Harpo's is one of the best sports bars in the SEC. I mean, of all the college campuses I've been to, it's one of the best in any of those college campuses. It's really cool. Uh, it's got di- it's got different levels to it, so it's got like, different vibes and different levels. There's a place for younger college kids, for older people. Uh, like I guess I'm old now, and then like even older people, like my my wife's parents, who go on some of these trips with us. So it's it's a fantastic town. Now I would strongly, if you're gonna go to, that would be my number one recommendation because it's just cool and it's a midwestern vibe. It's a different vibe. It's got everything you'd want there. Um, you guys know if you listen to the show, I like to on Saturday mornings. I I, I I'm a runner, so I'm always training for the Ath half during the football season. And uh, so I like to run. It's got great running. The campus is gorgeous. The downtown is awesome. You can literally run down the stadium, run around, run back. It's it's great. It checks all the boxes for me other than like the distance. And I get that, that can be a, a turnoff for people. But if you haven't gone, guys, and it's not just for Gavin here, any of you have not gone and you're looking to make a road trip, Missouri is fantastic, man. I, I would strongly recommend going there. I love it. So that'd be number one for me this year. Number two would be Lexington. It's a close number two. I love going to Lexington. It's just a cool trip, man. And no, I don't really, I did. I guess I did it once. I don't do the ponies thing. And really when we go in late um, October, or no, sorry, when we go in late November, Keeneland's not really running. When you go in October, which we've done a couple times, you can go, you can watch the horses and do that kind of stuff. And that's fun. It's a good trip. People like to do the the distilleries, you know, the whiskey places and all the bourbon places. And that's cool too. That's all fun and games. I don't really do that. Uh, I like I just like Lexington. I think it's a fun town. I think it's a cool place. Um, again, it checks all the boxes for me. Good hotels. All everything's within walking distance to the ho- to the to the stadium, which is a big thing for me. Good restaurants, good bars. There's a really cool bar in downtown Lexington called Henry Clay's P- Public House. I, I think is really cool. There and there's just a ton. There's a ton of restaurants. Ton of good places to eat. You can some, especially like late November, you can also catch a Kentucky basketball game if you're into that kind of thing. It's just fun to go into Rupp Arena and check that out. So that would be number two for me. And it's, you know, for Athens, it's about a seven hour drive, which is not short, but it's it's fine. Uh, we, we usually go through the Smoky Mountains. That's how I go to get up there. And usually there's some good scenery to take in that time of year. Now playing them really late November. I don't know if we'll see as much. We'll see if it's dead by then. Who knows with the weather these days? You never really know. But that's a really fun trip. It's all walkable, good, fun stuff. Um, I really enjoy that trip as well. So that'd be number two for me. Starkville, um, never actually been to Starkville. That's one place that I've not been to. So I can't speak on that one. That one's going to be new to me this year. Jacksonville, I always have a good time in Jacksonville, but if you're looking to make a, a, a unique road trip, I mean, you can do that any given year. I, I wouldn't, you guys know where I stand on Jacksonville. Downtown Jacksonville is um, a nothing town. I've kind of figured out where to go in Jacksonville now. You go to the little five points, you go to San Marco, there's some nice little areas there, but they're not within walking distance of the stadium, which annoys me. So yeah, it's a whole thing. It's just, Jacksonville, it's a fun trip. But where that stadium is located, the fact there's nothing downtown annoys me. So that would not be my recommendation. Who else am I missing? Oh, South Carolina. I think South Carolina is a fun trip too. Now that one is a quicker trip. 
So if you're looking to make the quick turnaround, that's a quicker trip. I think Columbia, South Carolina gets a bad rap from some people. And I know like that's what fan bases do. They make fun of other fan bases' towns. When you're Athens, when you're Georgia, you have the best college town in the history of college towns. You can make fun of everybody. So everything pales in comparison to Athens. We have to realize that when you go to these towns. But I think Columbia, South Carolina, it's, it's a solid town. I mean, it's, it's a capital city, so it's a little bit different, but it does have the college feel, which I like. And there's enough places downtown. The Vista is an area there that's grown a lot. There's more new hotels. Actually, I'm saying the hotel is brand new. I think it's an AC hotel that's brand new, I want to say, that's being built. No, not AC. It is a Cambria. Cambria. I think it opens in like July. So I'm taking a flyer on it and uh, staying there downtown the Vista. So there's a ton of great options there. So if, if you, Gavin, want some more specific details, reach out to me, man. You can DM me and I, or email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to give you some more recommendations. That goes for anybody out there. If you guys are making any road trip and you are looking for recommendations on lodging, food, whatever, just let me know. And um, chances are I have some recommendations I can give you guys. Now, it's all based on what I like to do, and that might not be what you like to do, but I can at least tell you places I like to go and things I like to check out when I am in these places. So yeah, happy to help. Just let me know. But that is all I've got for you today, guys. So I guess real quickly before we get out of here, I do just want to throw this out here about the baseball program. We have been limping to the finish line. But we did get one of three against Tennessee. We avoided the, we avoided the sweep, which was huge, because that still keeps the hope alive. Number one, of making the NCAA tournament. And number two, of hosting a regional. I think we're in really good shape to make the NCAA tournament. We're 14 and 13 in conference right now. What, 34 and 18 overall after being Presbyterian on Tuesday, wiping them out 18 to 3. There, are, there have been zero SEC teams in the history of the college baseball tournament that had been left out of the NCAA tournament when they win 16 conference games. We play Missouri at home this weekend, the final regular season series of the year. And they are the worst team in the SEC, according to record. If we can take two out of three and just take care of business against Missouri and get to 16 conference wins, we're going to be historically guaranteed a spot in the NCAA tournament. That's going to happen. We're going to get into the tournament, guys. Even if we don't get to 16, even if somehow we lose this series and only get to 15 wins, our RPI and student schedule are both still top 10 in the country. We're still going to get into the tournament. I feel strongly about that. We won't host. That's what I'm more concerned about is are we going to be able to host a regional? Because I think that's a big deal. Being a, With our bullpen issues, which we have talked about on this show before, it's really important that we be a one seed and get to face a four seed in the first round of the regional so that we don't have to dig too far into our bullpen. Our bullpen is very thin on quality arms right now. We have a couple guys I feel good about. Obviously, feel good, really good about about Jack Gowan, who pitched over three innings to get the the long save against uh, Tennessee on on Sunday. To or was it? No, actually, that was that Saturday. Was it Saturday? Yeah, it was Saturday to salvage one game against the number one team in the country, which was huge for us. And he's been like the one truly consistent arm for us all season long. Jaden Woods has the stuff, but he's got two pitches right now. He's got to develop more of a, th- of a third pitch. He got a great fastball, but players at this level can just sit there and time that and tee it up and hit it out of the park, which they've been doing with regularity with Jaden right now. So we want to avoid having to go too far into our bullpen and wasting those guys in the first game. So I think it's really important for us to host. And for that reason, by logical extension, that's why I think it's really important for us to sweep Missouri this weekend. Again, the worst team in the SEC. I think if we can get a sweep this weekend and then win our first round, our first game in the SEC tournament next weekend... I think that will about lock up us hosting a regional. So it's the big weekend. It's not that it's a big time opponent. 
We've faced three really good opponents in a row the past three weekends, and we've lost all those series. We've lost them all. Uh, we've taken one game in each of those series. We should have, God, we had LSU, man. We had LSU in Baton Rouge on Sunday, and then Jaden Woods came in and just freaking blew it, man. Oh, that one hurt. That one hurt. That one hurt. If we'd won that game, we might already have locked up a regional, maybe. I don't know. Whatever. That's in the past. I can't worry about that now. But I think we're in good shape. We need to have a big weekend at home to close out the regular season and at least win a game, I think, in the SEC tournament in Hoover next weekend. And I think we can host. I think that's big for this team. I don't think this team has College World Series potential. I mean, anything could happen, sure. But I just I don't think that we have the arms in the bullpen right now. And we don't have the depth in the starting pitching lineup right now. We have two guys. One guy I feel great about in John Cannon. And then Liam Sullivan and I feel pretty good about. I mean, most of the time. He's had trouble getting to the fifth inning at times. But he pitched well for us, well enough against Tennessee last Saturday. And Nolan Crisp is not a dominant arm, but man, he gives us a chance to win about every time out. He actually gave us a really good chance to win on Thursday night against Tennessee, the number one team in the country. We just couldn't score enough runs because they have dominant pitching. But he's been, you know, he's a guy that was slated to be a bullpen guy and has been thrust into a starting role. And I think he's performed admirably in that role when that's not really what he's made to do. But that's where we are with baseball heading into the end of the regular season. We'll have you guys updated on what the postseason outlook is next week. So make sure to check back for that. Of course, we'll also have your football fix for you as well as we do each and every week. We never stray too far from the gridiron on this podcast. But thank you for listening, guys. Always appreciate it. Keep the questions coming. Keep them coming, guys. We are going to be doing these mailbag episodes on throughout the rest of the offseason. So again, thank you for listening. Always appreciate you guys. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.